Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kerry, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me in. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have someone of your stature in here talking <laughs> about uh, macro. Um, just as a reminder that uh, we are going to be talking about macro today, and uh, Kerry represents JP Morgan Asset Management here in Australia, and it's important to recognise that any of the information that we're talking about today is just uh, factual in nature. It's all macroeconomics. We're not giving advice here on the show today. We're talking about the economy, interest rates, inflation, all those wonderful things. Bit of fun to start off with, Kerry. At the start of 2022, now if you think back to that moment and what would what would 2022 hold, would you be more surprised about the price of iceberg lettuce, that's option A, B, the returns of Aussie stocks, equities so far in 2022, Geelong winning the AFL, or Penworth, Penrith winning the uh, NRL? Wow, what a what are those four things? I love multiple choice. The answer is usually B. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, I think out of those four things, the thing that has surprised me the most is uh, the price of lettuce. And I say that only because I think the most surprising thing about the price of lettuce was the fact that KFC replaced lettuce <laughs> in its burgers with cabbage, uh, and thought that would be okay. And I just it, it always cracked me up because like, somewhere at a meeting, people were just like, "No, that's fine." Uh, yeah. And the second thing about that was that. Uh, the people at KFC who did, did that obviously thought that people were eating KFC for the salad. Yeah. <laughs> so it just made no <laughs> sense. Nutritional value. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> I think that was definitely the one that stood out uh, yeah. for me from this year so far. And oh my goodness, the start of the year. I know it's only been nine months, but it feels like a lot longer. Yeah, it has been. It's October 6th when we're recording this, by the way. And uh, so that puts us in the 10th month. And I think I've bought two iceberg lettuce this year because they were just too expensive <laughs> for me. Um, yeah. And I, for, for me being Victorian, as you are, um, to be honest, I'm not surprised Geelong won the AFL, so um, not a Geelong fan, but good on him. Um, mate, a few of our listeners would have seen you or heard you around. Uh, you do Bloomberg, you're on Equity Mates recently, uh, CNBC, if I'm not mistaken. So, people will see you around. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Because your job is quite unique amongst the team at JP Morgan. 
Yeah, it's it's unique. It's a it's a very much a generalist role. So um, rather than having a, a specific role looking at the, the equity market or equity stocks or, or being a, a company analyst, uh, I'm a very much a top down macro analyst. So we just look at how the world is evolving mm-hmm. um, and thinking about what that means for asset allocation and investing. So it's a very broad remit. So uh, somewhat of a jack of all trades, master of none to a certain extent. But I think that allows us to have this sort of very big picture of the world. So. Often in times of volatility and oftentimes when people get nervous about what's happening, uh, suddenly you start focusing on the very small details of things. And that can be appropriate at certain uh, times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for us, often we think about investors and our clients, they have a very different time horizon. Uh, they're taking a big picture view. They're thinking about what their investment objectives really are in the long run. And so we kind of think, well, you know, it's not the micro that matters, it's the macro that matters a lot more for those big decisions. And so we think about less being focused on a microscope of the markets and more thinking about a telescope and looking mm-hmm. at how the world's working. Um, and because of that, I do get rolled out a lot <laughs> yep. to you know talk to journalists, do podcasts like this, which is great fun, uh, and appear on TV just to share our views. Um, I'm not wedded to one particular asset class, like if I was an investment or a portfolio manager representing bonds or equities. So we had this agnostic view in terms of uh, a product or a particular asset class that allows us just to think about what makes the most sense. Uh, across assets in the current climate for investing and how we think things are going. So yeah, but it's a little bit unique within mm. the company. Some people love it uh, because it does have that agnostic view. Some people think, well, you're not investing money, so there's no conviction there. So maybe a little bit tempered on that basis. We have we have both sides of that coin. I think if we look at our team globally, um, it's very well received around the world in terms of the messaging that we put out and the clients uh, and how they can use it with their own clients and thinking about uh, their investment decisions. So it's just a way of providing as much information as we can around the markets to people and our clients uh, to help Hopefully, hopefully make them uh, allow them to make better investment decisions and just try to increase financial understanding around the markets and, and what really matters. Mm. And I think that's a, that's a that's why I really wanted to speak to you today in particular because there's been a lot of top down news, right? All of a sudden, people have gone from stocks only go up, bonds only go you know down, and now all of a sudden we're seeing a mixed bag, lots of volatility, uh, and people are hearing things that they've never heard heard before. So if you're new to investing and you're listening to this, you probably never heard the word guilt before, but we're going to talk about that today and what that means, like what the Bank of England has done recently, what's going on in different parts of the world. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to explain all this to us. How did you just one more on you, mate, if I may, how did you get into the role? Did you were you, were you on the tools so to speak like as a bottom-up analyst? before you got into this role? Uh, no, like I, I studied economics at university. I, I always liked economics because it was kind of like seeing how the piece of the puzzle fit yeah. together and, and how the world works. And uh, actually, it wasn't until my like third year of my undergrad that I was like, oh, I really like this and, and did a postgraduate on it. Uh, and then I actually worked in government policy for a long, long time uh, looking at this was in New Zealand. So the New Zealand government was doing a lot of trade deals. So I worked on the trade mm-hmm. team thinking about how the economy would evolve and what the different aspects of the deal would mean for the New Zealand economy. Um, and then from that, I, I sort of started working in the UK, but started in the pension industry. Uh, again, in the sort of macro landscape, thinking about what the investments should be based on where the world was going, thinking about what it meant for you know equities and bonds and how that matched up with you know what we needed from a pension point of view, and then honestly, I kind of stumbled into this job and JP Morgan, uh, just looking for for something that was a little bit more intellectually demanding. 
mm-hmm. in terms of what we required. And also, you know, Jack Morgan being a massive company, it just came with a huge amount of resource and, and ability sure. to grow in that role. So uh, we were talking earlier about my skating ability and I just <laughs> mentioned I fell off my skateboard a lot. Uh, and it kind of feels like the same applies to me getting this role. I mean, I, I kind of fell off and fell into it. Uh, and it has grown and changed over the last 12 years that I've been doing this job in JP Morgan, whether it was based in London or here in Australia. Um, it's just grown and grown uh, across our team um, and the, the questions we get from clients and also the types of clients we always talk to from anyone on the retail side all the way through to like, you know, pension funds and insurance mm. companies and investment uh, specialists within those areas. Okay. Yeah. For, uh, I did ask Gary before we started recording if it was an urban myth, <laughs> whether he skated to work or not, but you said that you also ride to work as well. Yeah. It's Seems a, safer. Not skating or riding my bike. Uh, anything with wheels, basically. <laughs> yeah. Why not? A bit of fitness before you get to work. That's only a problem if you come off. Yeah. <laughs> so, but- I, I want to I want to play a bit of a like kind of like a storytelling exercise with you. Uh, we're recording this on Flinders Lane, Melbourne, uh, in the CBD. I want you to imagine after you've you've done recording with us, you walk outside, and someone you haven't seen for three or four years walks up to you and says, "Kerry, haven't seen you for a while. I've, I've been asleep for a little while. I've been away. I've you know been trekking Africa or something, and I haven't paid any attention to the news. I'd love for you to explain to them or to us here now." how you can tell a story about what we've seen in global markets since maybe the beginning of COVID. So, that's 2019, 2020. I mean, if I did meet that person, I think I'd think of them as very lucky having not <laughs> having lived through the last couple of years or having at least avoided it. Um, and I think if I was trying to start out about what's actually happened in terms of the markets and the economy, uh, it's just been this massive swing and roller coaster. You've gone from a point where at the sort of end of 2019, it was always about oh, we're coming off this massive elongated bull market, mm. this huge expansion that's been going on for you know almost 12 years that started after the, the global financial crisis. And then suddenly you just hit with a shock out of nowhere in terms of uh, a global shutdown, the pandemic around the world, and, and really just literally a shutdown of the economy. People staying at home, industry stopping, uh, education stopping, everything just changing on a, on a dime really. Um, and also the response from governments changing in a huge way uh, to what we were used to. So the fact that you had monetary policy and fiscal policy working hand in hand to try and fill the gap that was mm. created by the economy that shut down um, and also think about um, how to get the economy going again. So there was this huge ruction in terms of thinking about the, the markets and the economies that we we hadn't seen for a very, very, very long time. Um, you know, you'd have to go a long way back to think about a pandemic before and then if that was explained to that person that this is what they've missed out, you've missed out on all this economy that hasn't been growing um, and suddenly it boomed because there's suddenly all this effect of the stimulus came through mm. and everyone started spending in crazy ways and now we're living with the hangover that came from that good times. You know, We're now thinking about why the price of lettuce is like $11 while the price of fuel is so high uh, and the fact that you know we're thinking about interest rates that are going back to the highest level they have been since, you know, before 2018, sorry, 2008, mm. um, it's just been a crazy time in terms of a really short period of economic contraction and then expansion, and then it's really coming to an end really quickly. So this accelerated economic cycle that we're just not used to has happened over the last three years, um, and now we're at a very much uh, a pain point in terms of markets, whether they're thinking about mm. why yields are going up and bonds are selling off at the same time of equities, and, and why nothing in my portfolio is generating returns, and why is cash the best performing asset this year? That's not really what we're used to. Mm. Do you think that, because it has changed so quickly, do you think that 
this is just like a broad strokes question. Do you think that central banks are at risk of, like, uh, I guess, increasing interest rates too fast without seeing the impact of those flow through the system? Or, you know, do you think that maybe what we've seen so far has been somewhat appropriate? I think it's been appropriate because there's been a realization what, well, actually, there's a lot more inflation than we thought. And it really comes back to the fact that there was no inflation for a long time. Mm. You had this no inflation period for about 10 years and everyone was scratching their head saying, well, why can't central banks create inflation if interest rates are zero? What's broken in the economy? And it did feel like central bankers were like still fighting that no inflation war, even though inflation was coming back. Yep. And uh, it took them a long time to realize that war was over and they should be fighting this new battle about trying to control inflation. Uh, and because of that, they had to catch up really quickly. And so now I think they're at that point where they have increased interest rates so quickly. So, you know, the RBA has put interest rates up uh, 250 basis points now over a very short period of time. Uh, the US has done like 300 basis points as well over that same period of time. Mm. And that's because they're trying to get back ahead of inflation. They're trying to win that battle. Um, but the risk is that, you know, monetary policy works with a lag. They have to wait and see the effect on the economy. And that's the risk everyone's worried about now that they will just overshoot the other way because they had done for a long time on the underside uh, and that when those rates get high and the economy catches up, things will be much softer. So it is about how that policy is transmitted to the economy, whether it's through the housing market, uh, whether it's through those higher mortgage payments that just sort of creep into your discretional spending, mm. um, or whether it's just sort of trying to cool the expectations of how much inflation there would be, because that's really important. The central bankers don't want inflation expectations to get a hand because they don't want people mm. to start demanding higher wages and have that embedded in the economy. You know, the way that inflation works and the why the reason why inflation has been, you know, relatively mild if we compare it back to like the 70s and 80s, is because if the central banks are telling you inflation is going to be 2% in the long run, people think inflation is going to be 2% over the long run. Right. And so that's that's kind of the narrative is really important here then, right? Because the concern, um, and we'll get to some more specific stuff in recent times, but the concern is like that core inflation reading is probably has caught people off. Like first it was energy and now it's the now the market seems to think, but is this, you know, going to be persistent? I think that's the fear, right? Yeah, that uh, it's come from transitory to, to persistent very quickly, yep. the central bankers. And, you know, we do look at the outlook for inflation and absolutely we think about the course of the next 12, 15 months to end of 2023, our forecasts have inflation coming down because look around the world, you know, we did spend heaps on goods, heaps, mm. that's a great New Zealand phrase. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then suddenly it's coming down because supply chains are improving. You mm. can look at things like the as uh, a purchasing manager's index for manufacturing that comes out every month. It's, it's uh, very widely recognized as being a core uh, economic indicator of where the economy is heading. Within that, there's a specific question they ask people about uh, supply delivery times. Is it taking you longer mm. to get your Hawaiian shirts that you're buying from JJ's <laughs> or is it taking less time? And now they're saying, well, it's taking less time. So those supply chains are improving all the time. At the same time, we have demand softening around the world. That means that prices aren't going up because you have better supply demand imbalance. Energy prices, as long as they stop rising, that becomes a disinflationary force because it's not adding to that inflation. That's coming through. Mm. Uh, and also, we just look at the other parts of the economy, that that impulse of everyone's spending after they come out of lockdowns, that's starting to fade off. So all that does add up to inflation coming down. The problem with persistent inflation is around the wages and the tightness in the labor market. That's got to be the biggest challenge for a central banker right now. They're thinking, right, why is the labor market so tight? Why? How am I going to create mm. uh, a recession without creating too much unemployment? Uh, or sorry, well, how am I going to slow the economy without creating too much unemployment that creates a recession? And how do I do that when we have an unemployment rate that's like 3.5%? Mm. Um, because that wage growth in any 
services dominated economy like many developed markets are, that's what's going to be creating that underlying pressure in the economy. And that's why that core rate of inflation that you talk about is going to be higher than those headline rates of inflation. And by and large, central bankers do think about underlying or core levels of inflation because they can't control the price of food, they can't control the price of oil. What they can to control is things like expectations around inflation, wage growth related to that, uh, and other aspects of the economy in terms of the housing market and those interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. I've got a couple of follow-ups here. One is um, you mentioned that you see inflation uh, coming down in 2023. To, to what level? Can you give us some context around that? Yeah, so well, it depends by by economy, but say let's talk about the US or Australia. Uh, in the US, we see core rates of inflation that are going to be above the central bank's target, so they're going to be above two percent, but going to be pretty close to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Australian context, we'll see numbers that come down to pretty much within the RBA's target band, so between okay. two and three percent. But that's the headline number. So if as the RBA focused on the the core rate of inflation, that might be a little bit higher. Uh, the core rate of inflation in the US might be a little bit higher than its target. So it really comes down to the point of, uh, and this is it's one of the questions that we don't have an answer to, is like how close to those targets are close enough? So mm, yeah. <laughs> if inflation gets to 3%, but they wanted it too, is that going to be close enough for them? Or are they really going to try and drive it down to two? Because if they say, well, that's close enough, then again, those expectations for inflation suddenly change and move higher. And that has huge knock-on effects for thinking about asset prices in general. Suddenly cash looks a bit better over the long run. Uh, you might think mm. about equities looking a bit worse and then think about what you really need in terms of yield on a bond to make sense in that market. So there will be those questions that come up over the course of this year and well, of course coming 12 months, but it will be the case that we see those core rates of inflation being a little bit higher than headline and probably still uh, a little bit higher than what central banks want. And for us, that just means that you know, there's a lot of talk right now about central banks pivoting, mm. um, that they, they're not going to really dial back the, the the messaging around controlling inflation, even if they do start to slow what, somewhat the size of the interest rates they hike up over the coming few months. They're not really going to dial back and say inflation is under control with yeah. that outlook. Yeah. And the, the other question that I had for you, just a very quick one, is you mentioned the PMI that – do you look at things like the, the the rates on on shipping and those types of things? Because I've seen that a lot around, and people are quoting these things coming way way off. Yeah, so there's lots of ones you can look at. So we look at uh, a bunch of different indicators that came up. So you can look at throughput of container ships out of the Shanghai ports. You can look at the number of ships that are sitting off the, the coast of um, LA in terms of the backlog there. That was 160 ships at the worst. That's down to about some three now. Of that. Uh, you can look at the ratio of empty containers to full containers in terms of what's been cleared off the ports in, in LA and Long Beach. You can look at the um, semiconductor um, lead times in terms of production. Mm. Uh, these are all good indicators of supply chain uh, weakness and supply chain strength in terms of what's coming through. The PMI numbers are great because they're consistent, developed every month, and they have that detail and that a high correlation to GDP in a big way. So that's why we look at them uh, quite closely. But there's a broad range of indicators which are all pointing in the same direction, Baltic dry index on, on mm. dry good exports. They're all shifting from what was a really strong pain point to something that's definitely improving. It's not quite back to where it was prior to COVID, but it's definitely getting there. Okay. Fascinating. Kerry, I might ask you about the Bank of England uh, and what's gone on recently there, but before we do that, we'll just have a break and hear from our sponsor. Kerry, one of the things that we've had recently, and one of the things that has probably scared a lot of investors, even seasoned investors, investors who have been around the block a couple of times, the the change in our government in the UK, the pound, people that are new to investing probably never heard of this thing called a gilt. Uh, it doesn't sound very good, but it's not spelt the same. Can you, I guess, build that narrative for us of what we've seen in England? Because 
I, the reason I'm really keen to talk to you about this is because as an investor myself, who's like primarily bottom up, I think when I, I zoom out and I think about markets, I think if there was ever something that was going to be peak fear for investors, it's something that they can't understand, right? So, it's like this big macro force that they think, no matter how good I am at investing, I'm not going to do a good job because I'm, there's this unstoppable force from the macro level. And so, I'm hoping you can just build that narrative and explain what we've seen. Maybe, like I said, we're recording this October 6th. Maybe however long you want to go back, whether it's a year, whether it's six months, six weeks, whatever, I'll leave it to you and I might have some follow-up questions around that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a good point. I mean, you can pick the the best company or you can pick the best security to invest in, but if market sentiment goes against you, it goes against you. Mm. Uh, that's probably the time not to panic and realize that you bought a good company and it'll probably come back. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say about that. When it comes to the UK, I mean, it is called a gilt. Uh, it's just a UK bond, UK treasury. Uh, it's called a gilt because when they issued them as paper, it had a gilded edge. And that's why it's called <laughs> a gilt. Uh, they don't obviously do that in this digital world anymore. Um, but what's really happened is that you can go back into almost track it back to, to Brexit and the fact that you've had quite a lot of government change in the UK mm-hmm. over a very short period of time. It's kind of ironic that uh, I think it was under David Cameron, they, they extended the term of the government, they said, we're going to make governments for five years because we want stability. <laughs> we don't want to be like uh, Italy where they change governments every like 18 months. And then now you've had three different leaders in the space of like three years, right? So you've had Theresa May, <laughs> you had like uh, obviously Boris Johnson, and, and now you've got um, uh, the new leader whose name just escaped me for Liz a second. Trust. Liz Trust. Um, and so you've got this new young government who's come in at a time where the economy is in trouble. Uh, you've got very high rates of inflation in the UK. It's it's over double digits. So it's over 10%. Uh, you've got the energy crisis looming. You've got households that are, uh, are screaming because of the cost of energy and heating their homes. Mm. Um, and, and you've got businesses who are facing the same problem and you're seeing a lot more demand for wages. And you've had a new government come in saying, well, we're going to fix all this and we're going to fix it by um, actually just spending lots of the money in the economy. We're going to cut tax rates. Um, we're going to do uh, a lot of offset for the higher energy costs by providing households money to to cap their energy bills. And we do a little bit for business on that regard as well. Um, and we still have to deal with Brexit going on in the background because it's not really official yet. Uh, and then at the same time, you're thinking about how they're paying for it. And they've yeah. said, well, we're just going to borrow lots of money to pay for it. We're not going to do anything around taxes. So it's completely unfunded. That's how they call it. We're just going to borrow to fuel it. And so that's going to create demand in the economy because they want to get the economy back on its feet. And then on the flip side, you've got the Bank of England going, inflation's at 10%. <laughs> yeah. We're putting up interest rates to slow the economy. These things don't jive. And by the way, we've just announced that we're actually going to sell all the bonds we have in our balance sheet over the coming years uh, to get rid of them because we're going from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. And that is actually selling the bonds. Like even the Federal Reserve or the RBA are just letting their bonds mature and roll off. They're actively selling into the market. So they're selling bonds at a time that the government's going to want to issue even more bonds. So you're going to have this huge supply of fixed income in the market. So the price just drops massively. Mm. Um, And the bigger issue is the market just looked at that and said, that's unsustainable. How are you going to fund all this debt when interest rates are going up? When interest rates was cheap, and of course, you could borrow as much as you want. And I think the problem was that governments have had this mindset recently that they can just spend and spend and spend, Mm. and they're not being challenged by the market. They're not being challenged because the market wanted that spending. They wanted that fiscal stimulus to support the economy. And now they're saying that's that's not sustainable 
And the UK also said, by the way, our official watchdog, the Office of, <laughs> Office of Budget Responsibility, you're not allowed to publish your forecast and what you think this actually means. And so it became a little bit uh, controversial in terms of how the market reacted. You saw huge moves in mm. the gilt yields at across the very long parts of the curve, which affects the pension industry. Um, you, massive drops in the value of the pound, as everyone just said, this is, is not a sustainable. And you kind of look at that and say, that's what really badly run emerging market economies did in the past. And that's not what you expect from mm. the UK, which has you know one of the oldest bond markets in the world, a very deep bond market, and just behaving in this way. And it kind of spooked the market saying, well, could this happen elsewhere? And there were some pure curialities around what actually transpired. So when it came to the, the pensions industry, for example, they use a lot of derivatives uh, to try and fund their liabilities in the future. Um, as those prices, those fell, they then have to do um, more selling and, and build up their cash reserves to offset that. So a margin call, mm. uh, that created issues. And so what happened is the Bank of England had to step in and say, well, we, we do think about financial market stability. <laughs> so to do this, we're going to pull a halt to selling those bonds that we plan to sell. We're actually going to step in and start buying bonds to show up the market uh, and show up the, the currency uh, and provide that stability. And so that's why you saw these almost like generational size swings in the bond market. Like the 30-year... 30-year UK gilt went from 5% yield on it to 4% in one day. It was the biggest move it's ever done. And hmm. perversely, if you'd owned that, you would have made a 40% return. But you know, <laughs> no one was thinking about owning these things. So you've had this huge amount of volatility that has just come at a time when there's this huge question mark over are central banks going to over tighten, like you talked about, create recessions, uh, how are they going to control inflation, and, and, and what's the outlook for the economy when we have um, had this very short and accelerated economic cycle that we've just been through. If I'm not mistaken, Kerry, I think... Um, the Prime Minister, UK, uh, took to Twitter and basically said, "We basically, we made a mistake. How does, like, there's a few questions that come from this, but how does an economy unwind something like that? Unwind the policy decisions? Yeah, and even just, like, how do they move forward from here? Again, it's about providing that certainty to the market. So, uh, the- Tory conference is going on at the moment in Birmingham, I believe. So they're talking about some of the the policies and maybe uh, being slower to adopt them. So from the the, the high end corporate tax, sorry, the the personal tax cuts they've been thinking about, they still want to do them, but maybe they won't do them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still providing that support to the to households, obviously offset the the energy crisis. So I think again, it comes back to having a very young, uh, excited government that was coming in or new leadership coming in uh, that wanted to put their stamp on what was going to happen. You know, perhaps you know they were trying to boost the economy. So they could force an election and get re-elected and have that uh, mandate or have that mandate mm-hmm. that says that you are an elected government rather than just a, a yep. new leader coming in. Um, but they just have to be more cautious and provide that certainty to the market. So they're allowing the OBR, the Office of uh, the Budget Responsibility, to actually do those forecasts. They've brought it forward, the date for that, so the market can look at that and say, well, actually, you are being fiscally responsible. Um, they're just dialing back their rhetoric from the, the very aggressive nature in terms of we're going to generate this growth in the economy. Uh, they've probably been shocked a little bit by the yeah. market response. And I, I guess that's the the key thing there, though. They're actually listening to what the market's telling them uh, and they're dialing it back. And I think from an investment point of view, that's that's the, probably the strongest message that you have had things calm down a little mm. bit after that extreme uh, period of the last couple of weeks. Mm. So how does – this is a probably a really high-level, maybe even superficial question. Is like how does that affect, say, pr- predominantly people that listen to the show are – people who invest the majority of their wealth here at home. How well, does that affect us here? 
it shouldn't so much. I mean, this is a good question because I'm a very superficial person. <laughs> um, it shouldn't. You know, the, the things that really affect Australia, like what happens in the US, yeah. I mean, because it dominates. You can look at the market on any given day and, you know, the, the, the S&P 500 goes up or down. Usually the ASX will then open up or down. We just take the lead from from what's happening overseas. And because we have that uh, uh, the much larger weight to the US and the world, it does make it. Um, when it comes to the UK or in Europe, we think about it being much more regional. So we think about these big splashes that happen over there and then quite small ripples that kind of affect us. You know, you think about mm. that going across a pond. We're very far away geographically. <laughs> it kind of what it feels like. It doesn't usually impact us. This one had much more meaningful impact. Impacts. We did again see big movements in the Australian equity market. We saw big movements in bond yields in Australia because it was more around that question of like, how are governments actually going to get out of this problem where you've had to have this marriage between fiscal and monetary policy yeah. for the last couple of years, where you've had spending when the economy is recovering, uh, so that sort of cyclical recovery, creating this inflation, how are they going to dial that back? I mean, Austerity and thinking about reducing budgets hasn't been a, a big thing for the last couple of years, and now governments really need to to focus on that a little bit more for that debt sustainability in the long run. And because there was that broader question around are central banks going to increase rates and create these recessions, and is that going to sort of tie in with what markets are going to do? That just infected you know what we saw in the US and what we saw here in Australia. But normally bond markets aren't that sympathetic with what's happening in the UK or Europe for the Australian context. We're much more sympathetic with what happens in the US. And usually it's places like the Federal Reserve in the US or the US bond market that dictates what happens in the rest of the world, not the reverse. But bond mm. markets are highly correlated around the world. Uh, you can look at the correlation on 10-year yields, and that does have some implications. This one was really outsized in terms of what actually did impact the market here. It hasn't usually been the case. We've seen such a strong connection. Mm. It just seemed like it was, uh, at least for the some of the financial media, it seemed like a really good uh, excuse to, maybe I'll say it, fear monger. You know, they seemed like a really good excuse. Though. People don't really understand what's going on, so let's like blow this up and make it something. Which is sounds like it was, you know, once in a generation, as you said, in terms of swings there. Um, maybe if I could shift gears away from um, bonds and back to equities and we'll go to North America. Over the, the course of this year, 2022, um, US stocks have come off the boil, it's fair to say. Um, and here in Australia, we have also experienced a bit of that, but not quite to the extent of US markets. I guess, how do you reconcile that? Um, <clears throat> well, it's... A couple of things. I think uh, obviously dividend income is a much more dominant part of the Australian market. Dividends are defensive. You think about having right. a steady income stream, so that offsets it. Uh, the second big one would be around <clears throat> the nature of what's happened over the course of this year. So we can think about uh, the demand for commodities that we've had. So again, commodities have been really uh, mm. well like supported. BHP and all those. Have, and those, yeah. that's a, a big part of the market here. So we're, we're an energy exporter. The fact that energy prices went up this year has been quite beneficial mm. for Australia. Um, and there's also timing. So around when COVID hit, the lockdowns and the, and the resumption of activity after that, that's sort of, sort of been a little bit delayed in, in terms of Australia versus the US, which sort of opened up and sort of said, we're done with COVID, move on much earlier than us where, you know, you think back to this time last year, I think there was lockdowns going on in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and so we've had that sort of delayed aspect in terms of the reopening as well. But I think largely, if you want to depend on one thing, it's the composition of the equity market. So the US equity market, a really big chunk of that is tech, is, um, tech market. It, it is those growth markets, mm -hmm. growth stocks, excuse me. In Australia, the IT sector is tiny. Yeah. Uh, we think much more about the banks and the, and the miners. 
that different compensation uh, and that different effect of higher interest rates on those growthier parts of the market has been the defining factor. When interest rates went up and you had very highly valued uh, growth stocks yeah. in the US, they just got pummeled. And we don't have that same weight within Australia. And that's why the impact has been less here compared to what we've seen over there, even if the direction is the same. Um, and again, I think because of that income stream and the income you get from Australia, Australia can often be seen as a cyclical market because we do have that commodity weights, but also within the Asian region, it can be seen as slightly defensive because mm. it is an income generator. So there might be some of that defensive bias coming a little bit more in Australia, which is held up. It just means our market's down, I think, 11% rather than 25 uh, the trend, though, is the same way. It is, it is a market that's been coming down um, and it has a market that has the same questions over it when we think about the outlook from equities for here. Mm. I guess i got a few questions to follow up here. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about the CAPE ratio? We do. I mean, it's come up over time and I think it's a, a really good one because it used to come up a lot around markets being really expensive and uh, mm. we used to criticize it a little bit because it showed you for a very long time that equity markets were very overvalued. Yeah. So uh, a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, so just looking at earnings over a very long time period in the past. Um, but it showed you that markets are very, very overvalued, and over mm -hmm. that time, equity markets continue rising. So if you took that as a signal and said, you know, the US CAPE ratio tells you everything's too expensive, you shouldn't own it, then mm -hmm. you would have missed out on a huge rally that <laughs> happened after sort of from 2010 all the way up to sort of 2018. So it, because it has that history, that lagging view on earnings, um, it it doesn't really capture the fact that the composition of equity markets change over mm. the long run. Uh, and so you don't get that shift that comes through. Uh, it also it comes back to this point around how valuations on markets have been sensitive to interest rates. So when we think about buying a company and a, a price to earnings ratio, it's what price you pay for every future dollar of earnings. So if you pay a, a price to earnings ratio of 10, uh, you're paying $10 for every future dollar of earnings in that company. Mm. Um, and then you think about how you bring back those earnings to today's prices, you apply the discount rate or the level of interest rate in the economy back to that. When those interest rates are really low, as we've had for a very long time, um, those discounted cash flows or discounted earnings look much better today. So you're willing to pay more for those uh, companies because those earnings look so much better. And that's why growth and tech stocks get such high valuations because those future earnings look so good. Mm. Um, and then so if you have a, a market which has a lot of growth in it, a lot of tech like the US, then those earnings get blown up and those valuations move higher. But you know, as we've come through and seen those sector compositions changed, as we think about those interest rates, which have been lower for a lot longer, and the fact that we thought about them being, you know, consistently pretty low as there's no inflation, suddenly looking at those very long-term historical trends such as CAPE became a little bit less relevant in that regard because mm. you were, we weren't really comparing apples with apples. So we prefer to think about, you know, what's the outlook for interest rates? Definitely it's higher now, given that we've got this more inflation coming through. We're not thinking about heading back to, to, to zero interest rates anytime soon. So that does change the way we think about valuations in the market and whether things are valued. But we also think in the long run, those valuations are likely to be higher because of those dominance of, of tech sectors, the way margins mm, operate in the economy. And that does mean that when we think about today's value versus future ones, that gap is a little wider. So we think about valuations overall being higher than they have been in the past. And that's why we weigh less in terms of thinking about is thinking about the last five-year valuations more important than thinking about the last 100 years? You know, probably. Yeah. Um, that you, you touched on earnings there, um, which is going to be one of my follow-up questions, which is just that have we, in terms of, do you look, do you look at forward earnings much? Like Mostly for, forward earnings, yeah. Yeah. How has that changed? Like, how has the view changed? Obviously, we've got high inflation in the US, tightening, um, tech stocks getting rolled off. Here, to an extent, we've had some of that those pockets of weakness as well, but you mentioned like resources doing really well. Um, 
does the forward view of these markets being Aussie and US, do the earnings suggest that we are in for a consider- considerable retraction? They don't. And that's that's the problem. Um, you know, speak to a, a equity PM or a, an equity analyst, and they'll tell you what, what matters for earnings is, is nominal growth. So real growth and inflation. So yep. that's because, you know, you think about inflation and you think about the price, the, the nominal, the value of your revenues going up, they go up, which is yep. great for equities if you're selling stuff. So mm. as long as there's nominal growth in the economy, your equity market should do well. And there's a degree of truth in that. The difference is now that you have very elevated margins because you've had good earnings, but uh, costs have been controlled. And so that means that profit margin has widened out. So the difference mm-hmm. between your, your costs and your profit and your uh, revenues. Um, and that's a very elevated levels. And it's kind of like, can those margins stay at that level when you both have a, a degree of thinking about a slowing economy? So that nominal mm-hmm. level of growth is going to come down because uh, inflation is coming down and growth is going to be quite sluggish in our view. And you've still got those margin pressures around, you know, input costs are still really high. Wage growth is still really high. So your margins are going to be squeezed. And the problem when we look at the consensus earnings, so if we take all the earnings bottom up for for the ASX or for the S&P 500, it shows you in the case of the S&P 500 that earnings expectations are still around at 7 or 8% for this year mm-hmm. uh, and for next. And it's really hard to remedy the fact that you have companies that can earn that much money with the economy that we're talking about might go into recession um, because you're going to get that margins being squeezed. And we think that's the, the challenge for investors at the moment. There's going to be no support from valuations going up when interest rates are, are high yeah. and inflation is a problem. It is all about earnings, which is going to drive the market. And it's more likely than not that those earnings expectations fall. So you are seeing that happen. You're seeing that downgrade cycle come through. Uh, and so far, companies have said, we're passing on costs. We're about to, we can keep our prices going up. Our margins are being quite resilient to this change. And I think that's going to change when we think about the, the US earnings season that's going on now. Companies will say, we're facing more pressures. Anecdotally, you can look at news stories around the US. Companies are now starting to hire, freeze people or yeah. hire or cut them back. That's them trying to control costs. And so uh, I think that'll be a big question around those expectations for earnings really coming down. And that would create more weakness in the, in the markets for us. And again, is why we'd be, from a multi-asset perspective, uh, largely not looking at a very favorable outlook for equities in the near term. Yeah, but then I guess there will come a time when that swings because- as you alluded to earlier on, that would affect the core inflation and the expectations around wages, right? At least in that market, because you're thinking, well, you know, we see these layoffs. These are typically profitable companies and they're making these decisions. Eventually, this is going to flow through and hit unemployment. And at some point in the future, we don't know when necessarily, but yeah. yeah. And that's a really important point because uh, markets are forward looking. So they're going to they're gonna see any recession coming and price it in much earlier than it actually happens in the economy. Um, and in the case of the US, there might not be a recession. You might just get this period of really weak growth um, that happens. And you know if that does happen, then central banks are going to be slower to respond and governments are going to be slower to respond. Like if there's a deep crisis, they, they tend to jump in really quickly. So you know it, it could be the case that markets start to price that, that slowish growth earlier and they start to then say, well, we do know that equity markets are vastly cheaper than they were at the start mm. of the year. And we do know that over the long run, valuation is the thing that determines your return. You know, how much you pay for something now determines uh, how much you pay for something or sell it for in the future. Uh, I'm a terrible listener at that because I just paid way too much for a house. <laughs> <laughs> it's fallen in value 5% already. Um, so it's going to be. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's going to be the determining factor over the next five years. So there's a massive long run opportunity for investors who have been thinking about the question is like, you know, are stocks overvalued? And suddenly the question, are they cheap enough? Uh, And so that are they cheap enough questions become more important. Uh, As soon as you see that bottom in the earnings expectations come through, that's when you'll see the market come off. As soon as you think about the Federal Reserve or other central banks, 
becoming less hawkish, that the clearer path for inflation, a clearer path for interest rates, and you can take away that uncertainty of like, will they crush the economy? Um, you'll see the equity market come back and it will provide much better longer time returns uh, than if you'd bought at the start of the year. And the same is true of fixed income. So the 60-40 old portfolio, mm. stocks and bonds has been terrible. Yep. Uh, it could be up for a, a bit of a revival um, mm. when things do come back. Yeah, that's what I was reading on the uh, Financial Times this morning, something to that effect. Mm. Um, and that's the, that's the question they said, cash has been outperforming this year, but there will come a time, right, where we turn that turns. Yeah, and cash is it works in in the short term, and it's it's defensive. And uh, I think if you talk to a lot of portfolio managers, they say, "Well, I've had more cash, so I'm waiting for opportunities to to turn to the market." Uh, that's great in the near term. Uh, cash will not give you your goals in the long term. Yeah. <laughs> cash is not going to pay for your kids' education. We think about what it goes up or anything like that. It's it's going to be a drag on a portfolio. So. I mean, admittedly, it's a good tactical thing, but it's not a strategic thing to have a lot of cash. Mm. Just conscious of time here, Gary, I've got two more questions I'd love to get uh, over to you, which is the RBA this week increased rates 0.25%. Everyone, I go on Twitter, everyone was saying it's going to be a lot higher than that. And they've come out and said 0.25. We want to see how it washes through. What did you make of that? I mean, yeah, admittedly, I thought they were going to go by 50 basis points. Um, you could go back and read the tea leaves of, of what Governor Lowe said, and we said, oh, it's a decision between 25 and 50. So he kind of hinted at it. I, I think they not necessarily got spooked, but were much more aware of what's happening in the global economy, uh, mm -hmm. much more aware of the, the fact that there's these big uncertainties around how consumers are responding to those higher interest rates. And it doesn't seem like they're, they're, they're responding in a way that says, they're slowing down. So retail sales, for example, have been pretty good in the economy. Uh, the labor market's still being quite strong. So you think about the resilience. The only area where you're actually seeing slowing is the housing market. Uh, and so I think they're, they're waiting and, and wanting to see, well, we have increased rates really quickly. Um, we do know it's going to have an effect. And so we're going to watch this for a little while. We're still going higher in rates because we still think that, you know, mm. the, central, the inflation is a problem. Uh, I guess that the, the path has changed, but the destination is the same. So mm. they're still going to push rates over 3%. They're still going to go up in our mind over the coming meetings. Um, <clears throat> and that's because, you know, Governor Lowe has said, we think the rate of interest in the economy, which is uh, neutral or where you don't get an expansion or contraction, is somewhere between 25 and 3%. We're just at the lower end of that now, 2.6%. So they could go up a little bit more and eventually push the, push the rates into restrictive territory. So over the course of the next few meetings into early next year. But I guess they're just wor not worried, but just more conscious of what's happening around how consumers are responding and the way they haven't been as you expected. Again, the risks around there from the rest of the world. And I think it's it's a bit like playing sports. You can take cricket. You know, we're not far from the G. Hmm. Um, you don't you don't bat at every ball to win a cricket game. Sometimes you just defence and pat it away, and it feels like the the RBA just did that. They just played a straight bat, hmm. batted it away. They weren't trying to swing for the fence and hit a six. Uh, and that's kind of the, the 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 remit now. I think the market now saying everyone else is going to follow suit yeah. is probably the wrong message. Yeah. I mean, inflation is way worse elsewhere in the world. Central banks are way more determined to control it. Um, so I'd be very hesitant on that sort of messaging. Mm. Um, uh, uh, there's one more question. Actually, I'm going to sneak in here, which is when we talked about the US versus Australia before, a lot of questions that I get from our members at RASC is, oh, well, should I go hedged, unhedged? And I'm not necessarily asking you that question, but I feel like the Aussie dollar provides a lot of cushioning against some of those adverse movements globally because we have that resources sector, which sells in US dollars, right? Mm. Um how much does that does the Aussie dollar factor into your thinking of how the Australian economy performs? 
I mean, yeah, it's a great question. So one of the, the things everyone looks at is like, oh, why is, why is the currency so weak? It's, you know, 65 cents. It's, it should mm. be stronger. Uh, always look at it on a trade-weighted basket basis. So, you know, the, the currency related to the currencies of the countries we trade the most with. And on that, it's actually just positive at the moment. So it's uh, just under 1%, I think, at the moment. Uh, and it's a case of thinking that well, that's good for the economy because we've been selling tons of coal, lots of natural mm. gas uh, and iron ore around the world. So that is providing a support to the economy. It drip feeds through in terms of incomes to, to households and, and helps that story around spending. Um, when it comes to thinking about currency in terms of asset allocation and thinking around the world, I would always consider it as a secondary impact. I'm not investing in the currency of that country I'm looking at. I want to know how the underlying asset's going to perform. Mm. If I'm buying US equities, what is the US equity outlook? And then it's a secondary impact around, should I be thinking about that in, in US dollar or Aussie dollars? Um, ultimately, I need to think about, do I want to just hedge out the risk across my entire portfolio, which is probably the smartest thing to do? Uh, or is it, I'm just happy to think about the performance of the underlying asset and, mm. and think about the fluctuation in the currency. There's a bit of a myth in my mind that you know currency changes wash out over time. I think that's true but over a very long time frame. I mean, the US dollar has been stronger for a lot longer than many people thought. So currencies can uh, really defy expectations. But I, I think for an investor, if you're thinking about offshore investments and the currency impact, it is a case of thinking about, well, if you hedge out the currency, the volatility is going to be lower. There's a cost to doing that, so bear that in mind. But don't think about individual asset classes. Think about your entire portfolio in terms of hedging that currency risk or not hedging that currency risk. Okay, great. Um, Kerry, representing JP Morgan here today, um, people can go to the JP Morgan website. The link will be in the show notes to get more of the insights. Um, I'll be hopefully having you on the show a few times over the next year and getting your insights just like these as well. But uh, if you do want to get in the mix and, and see what Kerry's written or see what the team's written, um, please go and check out the show notes because it's, a, it's just a fantastic resource that you have available. Uh, mate, just two more questions in closing, uh, just real quick ones if I may. Um, do you think the Aussie economy will enter a technical recession, two quarters of negative growth, if it's such a thing? Uh, no, I think it's uh, technical or not. I'm just trying to find out where that came from. I think it was like a, some some person in the media created it many years ago because <laughs> it's not how you define a recession by any sort of economic standards. And I think it might be a mute point. <clears throat> if we have very weak growth, it's going to feel like a recession. Yeah. Uh, and, and that could be a thing. If it technically enters a recession, it might be more of a positive uh, in terms of response from central banks and governments because they, they, you know, suddenly mm. everyone says we're in recession and there's an expectation of response. Um, if there is, if there's a recession in, in Australia, again, I don't think there will be. But if there is a recession, say, in the US, it's going to be mild because there's there's not really any huge structural imbalances mm. in the economy around the world. The problem has really been driven by the supply, the energy crisis, uh, and the inflation and the central bank's response to that. So they're very much policy-driven recessions that do come through if they will come through. Europe will go into recession. UK will go into recession. US is touch and go. I don't think it's going to happen in, in the Australian context. And again, because we don't have those big structural imbalances, we don't have those systemic risks from subprime or GFC, yeah. they will likely to be very mild. It's going to be a period of very sluggish growth regardless. And I think for that could feel like a recession for many people anyway. Mm, a time recession, uh, sometimes it's said. Okay, mate, uh, final question. If you were studying macroeconomics today, what are three resources or even three people that you might follow for insights on understanding the economy? Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> spoiled for choice really when it comes to, to people who are out there who want to speak about things. Um, there's a few and these are <laughs> There's probably better ones and maybe newer ones that just, <laughs> okay. just a bit older. I don't really know anymore. Uh, Ray Dalio, I think he's amazing yeah. in terms of uh, his length of tenure in the market and, and what he sees up and just the, the interesting things they look at. Um, uh, Mohammed Al-Aran, uh, who was the- um, okay. 
he's, he writes for the Financial Times now, but he's also uh, a professor at Queen's College in the UK, I think. Okay. Um, and he he just comes out with some stuff that's that's awesome. Uh, usually LinkedIn it pops up. He's, he's a really deep thinker um, and he's, he's very sensible about his approach to the market. Um, and one that I would always look at, and he's referred to as a perma bear, is um, Albert Edwards from SoftGen. Mm. So it's always nice to have something that challenges your view. I am admittedly a bit of an optimist at most times, so it's nice to to focus on someone who's saying very negative things and actually just challenging your view. So if you if you're out there thinking about you know where should I look for for views and where should I look for advice, make sure you pick people who who challenge yeah. and say different things to you. Um, and then finally, I, I would definitely have to say Dr. David Kelly at uh, <laughs> JP Morgan Asset Management, my boss. Um, he writes some excellent points uh, and has notes of the week he puts out on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and stuff, which are are very good. And again, he has an excellent way of framing what's happening in, in the economy and in markets in a really easily um, digestible way. So it's it's very accessible. Mm. Well. That- so to hear more of those and to hear what Kerry has to say, be sure to grab, uh, jump on the link in that, the show notes there and uh, bookmark the page. Kerry, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Uh, thank you very much. It was very enjoyable. It was great to be here. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.